0: christian witherford
1: and this is just the zoo of us your favorite animal review podcast where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness ingenuity and aesthetics
0: we are not zoological experts but we try our best to get the most accurate and interesting information we can
1: we do we did good i think
0: here's hoping put
1: in the work (laughs) uh it snowed this week that was big for us very big big news
0: a light dusting I mean, <laughs> but.
1: like the bare minimum, you could even <laughs> consider it to even be snow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we've lived in Florida for our entire lives up until this point. so
0: Yes, and we weren't expecting any snow in this particular part of Washington. So it was a nice little surprise. And we also played it up because it was the kids' first experience with snow at all.
1: Neither kid had ever experienced snow in person. Yeah. So big day for them. Yes. It was really exciting.
0: Perhaps silly to the other folks that have grown up living here, but (laughs) big deal to us.
1: Yeah, it was not that uh, exciting to a lot of people who were like, ugh, now I have to like Shovel my driveway, and <laughs> although it wasn't an amount that would have inconvenienced anybody, I don't yeah. think. it was literally like less than a tenth of an inch of snow, <laughs> mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we were like going outside and walking around in the neighborhood late at night because the snow was falling. We were so excited about it, mm-hmm. so we were really playing it up it was it was a big moment for us, yeah, so I hope that uh everybody is staying safe and warm. During this little surprise Arctic, wind, what do you call it? A polar storm? Something is that, like that what's going on?
0: Although I understand our neighbors to the south in the uh, Portland area got it much, much heavier than us.
1: I know, which is weird considering that we're like farther north and it was a little that's more just intense. Where that,
0: that's just where that storm ended up.
1: I guess so, yeah. So hope everyone's staying safe and warm. Yeah. I hope this podcast can be like a warm blanket on you, on your ears. It's my turn to go first this week.
0: Okay, I'll i have to take your word on it i didn't check no trust me (laughs) okay
1: and this week i will be reviewing tiger beetles okay tiger beetles of the family called Cicindelidae. i hope these were requested by daniel thank you daniel I'm getting my information from a lot of different places, including an article from Arizona State University's Ask a Biologist blog Mm. on tiger beetle adaptations and a 2014 article from National Geographic by Ed Young. But also a lot of scientific papers that I will cite as they come up, not to give anything away because there's some juicy stuff in here. Oh, fun. So, if you've never seen a tiger beetle before, they tend to be around twenty millimeters long, which is about eight tenths of an inch. So just oh, under. Oh, okay. An inch. These are little guys.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I was imagining something on the size of like a Hercules beetle. Or... No,
1: this is a little guy. Got it. They also tend to be kind of oval shaped. To me, I think they look like, you know, those like 600 milligram mm-hmm. t- ibuprofen I got sent home from the hospital with mm-hmm. that they have like that kind of body shape. And then they're known for having really, really, really long, really skinny legs. Oh, yes. Um, but they are a beetle. So they do have those like wings with the little coverings on them.
0: There was a name for those. I Elytra. forget what it is. Ah, thank yeah. You. <laughs> pretty cool. One,
1: and you can find tiger beetles all over the world because this family contains over 2,600 species. That's a lot. There's many different types of tiger beetles. So a lot of the information that I'm going to be talking about is kind of about a bunch of different species of tiger beetles. Mm-hmm. I'll try where I can to like specify which one I'm talking about, but there's one in particular that is well known because up until pretty recently, it was a record holder. For what? I'll tell you, in effectiveness, which is our first category <laughs> that we rate animals on which for us is physical adaptations, things built into the animal's body that let them do a good job of the things they're trying to do. I'm giving tiger beetles a 9 out of 10.
0: That's very good.
1: And the sort of main bulk of the points that I'm giving are for the thing they held a record in, which is they got to go fast. Hmm. An Australian tiger beetle species called Rivacendella hudsoni has been clocked at speeds of up to 5.6 miles per hour. And I know what you're thinking. That's not that fast. I could go 5.6 miles per hour, no problem. Sure. But consider that they are only 20 millimeters long. (laughs) They're less than an inch long. So what this means is that they are clearing 120 times the length of their body every second. So for comparison, a cheetah... Tops out at around 16 body lengths per second. Mm-hmm. And we think of them as the go fast guys. Like right. those are the guys that go fast. And they're only going 16 times their body length per mm-hmm.
0: second. Mm-hmm.
1: But a tiger beetle is going well over or under ten times that.
0: Which that makes sense because we see this a lot in insects, right? They're doing things that are very impressive at their scale, and you would say, now if you scaled that up to a human, they would be this strong. But it doesn't ever work like that, right? (laughs) You wouldn't.
1: Yeah, if you were to scale them up to our size, they would be dead and crushed under the... (laughs) (laughs) Like
0: I think people talk about, for example, the the weight an ant can lift, for example
1: isn't there a whole there's a superhero based on this right
0: ant-man no it's no
1: ant well i mean i guess right like ant-man is kind of like that but there's another one called um it was old 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 i'm thinking like with those old like Hanna barbaric cartoons um what was he called adam ant do you remember him i think so yeah Yeah, it was something like where the idea was like oh if you took the strength of an ant and scaled it up to human size it would be like incredible Mm -hmm. yeah the tiger beetle is kind of like that and in fact the first time i heard of tiger beetles was on this old episode of the most extreme which i've talked about on the show before and all i remember is the little animations they would make of this little green cgi dude where they would give him these like crazy adaptations that animals have Mm -hmm. to see how silly it would be if humans had them and the tiger beetle one was very funny Mm -hmm. because this man was going quite fast (laughs) So just for a little bit of fun comparison, if I, a human being at five foot seven inches tall, were to run as fast as a tiger beetle... I would run 456 miles per hour. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So while, yes, on foot, I would smoke a tiger beetle in a foot race. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. uh, if you were to shrink me down to their size, it wouldn't even be a
0: competition. I don't know. I wonder (laughs) what would happen. I don't know.
1: Nothing good. Now, this was believed to be the fastest land animal in terms of relative size mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. 2014, when a mite from California with the scientific name Paratarsatomus macropalpus was documented, absolutely booking it at a breakneck 30 centimeters per second, which, once again, doesn't sound that fast, but mm-hmm, it is 322 mm-hmm. body lengths per second. So, like, twice the uh, relative speed of the tiger beetle. Mm -hmm. So yeah, once you like zoom in on the tiny guys, it doesn't look to us like they're going that fast, but consider (laughs) that they are tiny.
0: You know, just a sneak peek. I also have an animal with questionable record holding definitions. (laughs) We love a loophole.
1: (laughs) We love technicalities. A win is a win Mm -hmm. as it were. Now they do got to go fast. But I did give them a 9 out of 10. And that is because while, yes, they do go fast, oops, that was too fast. Mm. (laughs) They go too fast, actually, unfortunately. (laughs) Tiger beetles, when you watch them hunt their prey, which is any other small, like, invertebrate, small enough for them to catch and eat, they have a really unusual pattern of pursuit when chasing prey, where rather than just, like, following the prey where it goes, they run in a straight line. And then stop look around turn towards their prey run in a straight line again so just in a series of zigzagging straight lines where they're never quite like keeping up with the prey they're never quite like you know watching where it's going and like adjusting course they have to stop look around reorient and go again so scientists at cornell university studying the tiger beetles discovered the reason for their jerky movements and that is that when they run They go so fast that their eyes can't keep up. Mm. Their eyes cannot, they cannot visually process the world around them while they are running. Their eyes literally cannot perceive the world (laughs) around them at that speed. (laughs) So in a 1998 interview with the Cornell Chronicle, entomology professor Cole Gilbert said, quote, it doesn't mean that they are not receptive. It just means that at their speed during the chase, they are not getting enough photons reflected from the prey to make an image and locate the prey. Hmm. That is why they have to stop, look around and go. Although it is temporary, they go blind. So they are running, cannot see anything. (laughs) which reminds me of that show that i probably shouldn't like talk about on this podcast because if you're listening to this and you're a kid do not watch this show the show where the guy was running so fast and he ran through a person
0: yeah the boys
1: the boys that's what the show is called (laughs) yeah don't it's an unpleasant show to watch but (laughs) if you're a child or easily stressed out like me if you're me don't watch that show (laughs) but that's kind of the idea is that you run and you can't really see where you're going.
0: And and they're not aiming for where the prey is going, just where they're at. Is that what they're doing?
1: It seems like it. Yeah. So they, they have to do it a few times. So it does slow them down, right? They can't just go straight for the prey. They have to zigzag a few times to get there, but Mm -hmm. they go so fast that nothing can outrun them like that. So even zigzagging they can still catch what they're going for.
0: Well it sounds like as as long as you're not going straight, you'd probably be okay.
1: <laughs> well, here's the thing. You don't even have to like zigzag or turn or anything. All you have to do is hold still.
0: <laughs> because
1: if you stop, they could pass you oh. or like not know where you went because they're like looking for where they think you're gonna be. Oh. And if you stopped, they don't know where you've gone. So like Prey can escape a tiger beetle by just not moving, mm, mm. which seems like a flaw in the approach.
0: So you just deploy the camouflage while they're, you know, hyperspace traveling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they should have done that in Star Wars. <laughs> Use your hyperspace and then, and then cloak. And that's how they could have gotten away from whatever that ship was with, yeah. with the zoomies mm-hmm. through the space. Um,
0: Roll credits. Yeah. The the movie would have been over so fast.
1: It would have been just the one movie. (laughs) Now, this isn't like the only tool in their kit. Some tiger beetles are full of poisons, like cyanide. Um, Now, typically the ones that are full of poison have aposomatic coloration to go along with it, Mm -hmm. which means these bright warning signal colors that let you know that whatever... That is is not going to be tasty. So they'll have these like really cool metallic, like iridescent colors and and bright orange legs. A lot of times if you see a bug that has bright orange limbs, don't touch it. Like the bright orange limbs and stuff are usually a sign that like there's something spicy going on in there. It's, mm-hmm. like, a, it's like how like a chip bag will have like bright red and orange colors on it to let you know that the chips are spicy. Yeah, It's like that.
0: Now, is this a poison that is on the outside or on the inside of them?
1: It's on the inside. Okay. Yeah. So, like, they're not going to do anything to a person, probably, right? But if you, like, ate one, it wouldn't be good.
0: Well, what I mean is, by the time the thing that's eating it gets to the poison, it's already too late for the beetle. It is, in fact, too late, yes. (laughs) It is too late for the beetle
1: and also too late for the predator Uh, because now it's in your mouth.
0: Well, lose lose for everyone.
1: (laughs) Yeah, nobody's getting out of that unscathed, unfortunately. (laughs) Now, like other bugs. Tiger beetles do have a Goldilocks zone of body temperature. Mm. So we've talked about this before with the Saharan silver ant, which actually overlaps a little bit with this beetle in that they go very fast and have to worry about it being too hot. So if they get too cold, they'll slow down or be just completely unable to move. But if they're too hot, they'll cook. So they have to find this middle ground of not being too hot and not being too cold so that they can run. And this is difficult for them because they often live in hot places and they run along the ground. Mm. So they're like right in the place where it's hottest Where like if they're running across something like sand or concrete, that heat from the sun is just being reflected right back at them and they're right on the ground. So it's really, really hot and they have to come up with different ways of thermoregulating themselves, right? They're bugs. They're not like warm-blooded they can't control their own body temperature Mm -hmm. so they have sensitive hairs on their undersides that actually can help insulate them from the heat and they also have their long like stilt-like legs that i mentioned earlier that let them run really fast also elevate them away from the ground
0: Mm. and keep them
1: away from the heat that's being reflected off of the ground okay yeah so there's some interesting ways that they're not cooking themselves alive which i think is pretty cool
0: Does them moving fast help with the air cooling component?
1: (laughs) Maybe they're getting a nice little breeze
0: from just (laughs)
1: running really fast.
0: Well, like how some cars depend on it, like catching air through the the front grill to cool down the engine.
1: Oh, yeah, (laughs) that probably does help. This brings me to my next category that we rate animals on, which is ingenuity. These are behaviors, things the animal actually does to solve problems that they face or get an edge in the world. I'm giving tiger beetles an eight. Out of 10 for ingenuity.
0: Okay, that's very high for an insect.
1: I did give them this because they do have an interesting way of preventing themselves from running into obstacles while zooming. Oh. Because they can't see what they're after, but they need to, like, not run into stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they hold their antenna out in front of them rigidly in a V shape. And then if one of those antenna bump into something, they know how to stop, Hmm. which Makes a funny mental image for me because I imagine if I was running so fast that I couldn't see anything around me, so I just held my arms out in front of me at all times, like (laughs) completely rigid, just hold your arms out in a straight like V in front of you and just run like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like trying to walk around your house at night with the lights off, (laughs) but you know, fast.
1: (laughs) It's a reverse Naruto run. (laughs) Oh, no. the scientific study that revealed this behavior involved having tiger beetles run down a track with an obstacle in the middle. And then some of the beetles had their antenna removed while the others were left intact. And I wanted to talk about this study because it had some interesting language in it. Uh, this is from the results section of the paper. They said, quote, even with the tallest obstacles of high visual contrast, the proportion of individuals face planting, <laughs> Onto mm. the edge of the obstacle increased fourfold when the antenna were removed. Mm. I found it interesting that they used the word faceplant, because that's very funny to me, yes. and I wondered how they defined that. Good news, they define a faceplant in oh. the paper
0: <laughs>
1: as, quote, contact of the head with the side of the obstacle. Mm. A bonk, if you will. Yeah, They bonk their noggin. Mm-hmm. So I liked that this was a study to see, like, how often they bonk their noggins when you take their antenna off. Yeah. That study, by the way, was called Static Antenna Act as Locomotory Guides that Compensate for Visual Motion Blur in a Diurnal Keen-Eyed Predator. That was by Daniel B. Zurich and Cole Gilbert, Proceedings of the Royal Society of Biology Sciences in March of 2014. Now, when they are hunting prey, tiger beetles have two main strategies for taking down live prey. They can either ambush them or pursue them. So ambush means that they will stay still and wait for prey to come to them and like wait for prey to get within like striking range, basically. Like lie and wait. You they may camouflage themselves, mm-hmm. hide, stay very, very still. As soon as something is close enough for them to grab it, then they grab it. Well, pursuit means that they run and close the distance themselves. So they see something running around, they run after it. Mm -hmm. And studies have shown that tiger beetles will switch hunting strategies depending on factors like the type of prey that they are hunting as well as um, how many there are, the size of the prey, and how many other tiger beetles are in the area. Mm. Yeah. So for example, when hunting something like a slow-moving larva, like a caterpillar or something, they could very easily pursue and catch up to them. That's not very risky. So they just run right up to them and it's fine. But if they're hunting something faster that could fly or jump away, then they might ambush them instead because it's riskier to run after them. If you're running after it, it has plenty of time to, to jump and fly away Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's interesting that they kind of are able to tell well this is something that I know will be able to escape if I run after it so I have to approach it differently so they have to recognize the prey use what they know about that prey to decide how they're going to hunt it
0: yeah okay I can see where you're going with that
1: yeah They also have to know when to fold them. They got to pick their
0: battles. (laughs) They
1: often give up on a hunt and release their prey if they don't kill it on the first strike. Oh. So they go for this kind of strike that like severs the nerves in their prey that like paralyzes or just straight up kills them. And if they miss that first strike and they don't immediately kill it and the prey is like fighting back, they let it go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're not going to like go for an extended fight. It's not going to be like a long wrestling scene. Mm -hmm. They're just like, oh, well, that's it. (laughs) <laughs> GG, I guess.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because fighting with struggling prey could injure or even kill the beetle. So they know it's really, really risky for them to try to like engage in an actual fight. So they're trying to do this whole sort of like single strike move. They will also let prey go if they catch it and then identify it as something that could be harmful to them. Oh. So if it's something that has like chemical defenses, right? If you're like, uh oh, I didn't mean to catch this. <laughs> this is not something I should be eating, they could, you know, just let it go and run away. And the two papers that I learned all of this hunting behavior from were Catch Fast and Kill Quickly. Do Tiger Beetles Use the Same Strategies When Hunting Different Types of Prey? That was by Tomas Rewix and Radomir Yaskula in Pier J in November of 2018. And the other paper was Adult Tiger Beetles Cisindella gemata modify their foraging strategy in different hunting contexts. That was by Shumin Wang et al. In insect science in March of 2023. So a lot of ongoing research on their hunting strategy. And it's cool because I read that a lot of the studies on the ways that tiger beetles perceive the world around them when they're running is helpful for applications in robotics as a lot of sort of insect studies are helpful in robotics because insects kind of run like robots a little bit. Okay. (laughs) Where, you know, the idea is that they're running around when they can't necessarily see the world around them. This could be helpful for things like programming a robot to navigate in the dark. Hmm. So a lot of this research about how tiger beetles perceive the world while they're running is helpful for programming things like Mars robots, like the rovers that go on Mars and stuff like that, because Hmm. they may need to operate when it's really dark and they can't necessarily see the world around them. So you have to program this robot to use different ways to sense the world around them when they can't see. Hmm. So I think that's cool. Like the applications of insect behavior and like robotics and stuff. It's really interesting. Yeah, This brings me to aesthetics for the tiger beetle. I'm giving them an eight out of 10 legs for days long very impressive legs they Mm -hmm. run so fast a lot of them like i mentioned are like this iridescent metallic look they look like little jewels that is just beautiful to me i love that they're not all like that some of them are more built for camouflage so some of them might be like a sandy brown some of them might be like more dull colors because they're meant to blend in and not to stand out so not all of them look as flashy the face is also bad the face is not good. Oh. Yeah, the they often have these huge eyes that like bulge out of the top of their head. It's not like elegant. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cartoonish and like really weird. It's not cute. And then the mouth situation is a mess. Like I it's incomprehensible. Huh. It's it's Lovecraftian. What what's going on with their mouth parts? I I wanted to like lean in a little bit to like see what's going on with their like mouth and immediately I was like, "No." No, that's okay. I'm okay with not knowing about that. So, the face is a disaster. So, as long as you're looking at them from, like, above and maybe, like, behind a little bit, so you're seeing, like, the beautiful exoskeleton, that's great that's awesome Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. maybe just keep a good like 12 inch distance away so you don't get too close
0: maybe it's an intimidation thing like you (laughs) you see this face coming up on you so like
1: (laughs) i I mean if you see a tiger beetle coming after you it's all that's like it's like slender man like (laughs) it's not good Now, the University of Florida's entomology and nematology department describes uh, a particular Florida species as having, quote, the unique characteristic of giving off an odor quite similar to juicy fruit gum.
0: Oh. So I
1: guess this one special Florida tiger beetle smells like juicy fruit gum. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe, I don't know, try sniffing some beetles. That's the only, like, mention I found of a smell, but... That's science, baby, right? Like, go out there, sniff some beetles. I mean, let the world know. What do they smell like? That's probably
0: not the association you want, though. (laughs) (laughs) If I eat this beetle, I can have 30 seconds of flavor.
1: I mean, I'd rather just eat the juicy fruit gum, right? Like, it's more accessible to me and and more pleasant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't know. Try sniffing some beetles. That's my takeaway for this Mm, episode. mm. Now, this is usually where I talk about conservation status. This is a whole family of beetles. There's, I mean, conservation wise, there's nothing I can really say about that. I will say that since they are voracious predators of just about anything small enough to kill, and yet they don't have any means of stinging or biting humans, mm-hmm. I mean, they could bite you, but like it's not going to be a medically significant bite or anything like that. uh They are considered great natural pest control and beneficial predators to have around. So if you've got little tire beetles scurrying around in your garden, that's your little security guard. They're Gobbling up the other stuff that might threaten your plants. So,
0: termites done. Mosquitoes out of here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wish. Well, no, because the, the mosquitoes are mostly like, you know, they're going to be in the air or they're going to mm-hmm. be in water or something like that. So, they're not going to be crossing paths with well, tiger beetles. You,
0: you give them little ramps and then. Oh, sure. You just wind them up and <laughs> they, they launch off these ramps. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, keep in mind they can fly. Like oh, tiger right. beetles can fly. They don't do it a lot, but they can. So, like, if something is chasing them, right, mm-hmm. they can take off and fly away if they need to. Ah, uh, okay. It's not their preferred means of transportation, but they can. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they're much faster, I think, on foot. So they're not. But they're not going to be chasing down a mosquito, I don't think.
0: I believe in them. Yeah, go get them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and those are tiger beetles. Well, thanks. Thank you. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then let's talk about your animal. Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast secretly incredibly fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff.
0: I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. I'm Elliot Kalin. And together we are The Flophouse, a long-running podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. And because we're so long-running, maybe you haven't given us a chance. I get it, but you don't actually have to know anything about previous episodes to enjoy us. And I promise you that if you find our voices irritating, we grow endearing over time. Perhaps you listened to one of our old episodes and decided that we were dumb and immature. Well, we've been doing this a while now. We have become smarter and more mature. And generally nicer to Dan. But we are only human, so no promises. Find the Flophouse on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get podcasts.
1: So, darling, what animal do you have for us this week?
0: This week, I'm talking about the giant siphonophore, scientific name, Dubia.
1: This is a beautiful name. It is. For people that come to the show looking for D&D character name mm. inspiration, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Last week, it was Lynx Rufus. This week, it's Dubia. There's always a good character name idea.
0: Yes. For sure, And this species was submitted by Aaron Frank and Kelsey Muir. Thank you both. Thank you. And I'm getting information from a couple different places <laughs> in the order in which I found them. Guinness World Records, Aquarium of the Pacific, Marine Bioluminescence webpage, and also Siphonophores.org.
1: We love a straight over the plate, this animal, <laughs> dot org. <laughs> we should start trying like whenever we're... Starting our research on an animal, just try typing in the name of it and then yeah. hit it with a .org at the end.
0: Maybe try a .edu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. .Gov. <laughs> the government of siphonophores has a
1: has a website.
0: Yes. So a siphonophore, visually, <laughs> probably unlike anything you've ever seen before. Yeah. I would think
1: very, very foreign to the human eye.
0: Yes. Uh, very long and very thin uh, and mostly transparent. So, uh, when I say long, I'm talking 40 to 50 meters long.
1: How many in freedom units
0: <laughs> Jeez. is that? That is 131 to 164 feet.
1: 100... Wow. is that That's not longer than a blue whale, is it?
0: Uh, I think it is, actually. Oh.
1: Wait, one sec. Reaching a maximum confirmed length of 29.9 meters or 98 feet yes. is a blue whale. Yeah. Wow. So, these things are... Why, uh, why, why don't we talk more about this?
0: <laughs> I feel like
1: blue whale is like the one everyone knows. How come the siphonophore is not getting the attention um, it Because it
0: is that long, but it is maybe the circumference of a broomstick. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: does feel like, it's like, yeah, but.
0: <laughs> and another reason is while they can be found in the world's oceans, it's usually at a depth of 75 to 127 meters or 246 to 417 feet.
1: I was wondering how they don't just get like torn to bits at a length and narrowness like that, but
0: they do. It seems like there's not a lot else <laughs> down there to
1: be running into.
0: Uh, I should mention that I'm pulling a lot of information that is not specific to this species of siphonophore, but siphonophores in general. Okay. Uh, this belongs to the taxonomic family Praidae. Uh Some things that are related to it, of course, are other siphonophores, and that also includes the Portuguese man of war. <gasps> That we oh. talked about in episode ninety one.
1: Oh, a callback a little yes. bit. I didn't realize they were cousins. Well,
0: we we mentioned that I believe that the man of war is actually a siphonophore.
1: Mm, Okay. Yes. But this is just a big guy.
0: Yes. The big one. Okay. And I would say most siphonophores are more like this one than they are the man of war. Oh, really? Yes. Because uh, the man of war is a little bit special in that it is found at the surface of the ocean usually. Oh, but these are way down there. Most of them are found deeper. Mm. Yes. So first, effectiveness. I'll give it an 8 out of 10. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about is the big thing with siphonophores in that they are considered not a single organism.
1: Mm. But they
0: are a colony of organisms. Like,
1: like coral, maybe.
0: They're actually related to coral.
1: Oh, yes. there you
0: go. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I see it referred to as a super organism.
1: Love that. I'm a superorganism. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So instead of being one large living creature, it is actually many smaller living creatures called Zoids.
1: Not Zoids? No. The giant robot anime?
0: <laughs> no, but there are similarities, I would think. <laughs> <laughs>
1: In the early 2000s, for those of you that weren't alive, there was an anime called Zoids. Uh-huh. Where the, it was like a post-apocalyptic world populated by giant animal robots.
0: Yes. And they... Combined Was that that show? No, no? that's oh, okay. a different one. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't very into the mech scene in, t- in general.
1: No, Zoids walked so that whatever you're talking about could run.
0: <laughs> I have to take your word on it.
1: Well, so that Horizon Zero Dawn could run. Really. Uh-huh, that was uh-huh. the laying a lot of the groundwork for that.
0: So they belong to the Hydrozoa classification there, uh, which includes things like true jellyfish and anemones. True jellyfish. (laughs) Well, I bring that up because the Portuguese Man of War resembles a jellyfish.
1: That's true. I would have probably clocked it as a jellyfish.
0: Right. But it's actually a siphonophore. And here's where they're a little different from their cousins of the corals, uh, where corals are made up of a colony of individual organisms, but they're all the same. They all Mm. do the same thing. Right. Mm. Whereas with siphonophores, each zooid develops to have a specific purpose. Oh. Right.
1: Like an ant colony. Sort of. you have like different ants that like have a different body for the different things sure. they do.
0: Yeah, you could think of it that way. So um, some are designed for buoyancy, some for locomotion, and others for feeding and others reproduction.
1: But it's like the whole organism itself has that function.
0: Yes. So for example, a zooid that is meant for feeding, that's the only thing it can do. It doesn't have the structures to allow it to, to affect the buoyancy or the locomotion of the overall siphonophore.
1: This makes me wonder, at what point do you consider that an organism, right? Like, yes. is that really an organism? <laughs> or it's kind of like the cells in our body, right? Like,
0: So I'm glad you bring that up because I spent uh, an embarrassing amount of time <laughs> contemplating this. <laughs> <laughs> Having something of an existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> So first of all, the zooids themselves are... by At that level, those are already multicellular organisms.
1: Okay. Right. It's cells all the way down. <laughs>
0: it's a little so,
1: fractal of a being. So
0: these aren't like single cell organisms we're talking about. Okay. And to that point... Depending on the context you're talking about, it could be considered a single, like, superorganism or a colony of individuals. Mm. But it it depends on the context. And it really delves down into what does individuality mean. Oh, no. (laughs) Because if you're talking, like, at the ecological kind of level, then Mm -hmm. it would make sense to treat it as one organism. Right. Right.
1: Because I'm imagining you're not going to have one of these little guys floating around on their
0: own. Right. They can't survive on their own.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: So I'm actually going to read a quote from Siphonophores.org that I think worded it beautifully. Oh, great. <laughs> um, and what this is talking about is how we perceive a Siphonophore and contemplate this concept of individuality and how something else might look at us and wonder the same oh. thing. And it reads, It should be noted that an amoeba which is a solitary cell would have much the same trouble contemplating the individuality of a human humans function as ecological behavioral and evolutionary individuals but they are made up of many cells so is the entire human an individual or are each of the cells individuals
1: mm. Uh, i don't like it (laughs)
0: because
1: then that gets into like which part of me is me if you is it my body is it my brain but what part of my brain right like you couldn't pinpoint a certain like location where Mm -hmm. you
0: are Mm -hmm. so the main thing that distinguishes siphonophore's specialized individual bodies from for example reiterated organs like maybe in a plant is that those individuals contain many of the structures found in their solitary relatives. So like, oh. for example, anemones, jellyfish, that kind of thing. Mm. So it's because we have something to compare them to of things that in another context are alive and individual on their own.
1: Oh, I see.
0: So like, for example, uh, we don't see human arms running around by themselves. Right? <laughs> <laughs> But that makes me wonder uh I mean would we still consider them that if their cousins weren't around anymore like if we weren't aware of their like free roaming cousins right you know?
1: So is it that like we can we can look at the individual do you call it a zo- zoid
0: zoid 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 Z O O I D I
1: love that <laughs> I would have said zoid but I
0: did for a while <laughs> <laughs>
1: So if you like zoom in on one, Mm -hmm. you will see that it has like all of the different structures within it that you see in other like Mm -hmm. individual jellyfish or individual. Right.
0: Because this is not, it's it's a colony in that it starts from one that kind of buds into more. Mm -hmm. It's not like it was a ton of individuals that came together and coalesced.
1: I see. You got to kind of start from one. Mm -hmm. So it would like, you wouldn't zoom in on human body cells and see that each cell has its own like brain and heart. Mm -hmm. They don't have this same like structures right interesting
0: so yeah it's, it's an interesting topic and and some contexts that distinguishment doesn't matter but now <laughs>
1: now to further the thought experiment uh-huh. if it's say perhaps lost some zoids along the way hmm. and then grew new ones and then eventually over time lost all of the original zoids <laughs> and, <laughs> and had grown entirely new ones Is that a new one or is it the same one?
0: (laughs) See, that's something I wasn't able to dig very far into (laughs) it because it seems like there's one or two parts that is growing everything else. Mm. So, like, I think if you think of it as a a line (laughs) of these, like, polyps, that the stuff down the line can be lost, but they will be replaced. Mm. But I think... The stuff around the what they call the growth sections—if those are lost—I think there's no replacing those. It's
1: like a like starmy, <laughs>
0: Pokemon. <laughs>
1: I like as long as like the core remains, like I guess the core is like the. <laughs>
0: that, that's that's kind of a guess though. I wasn't able to dig that far into sure. it. Sure, <laughs> you um, weren't
1: you weren't predicting my question about the siphonophore of Theseus. Yeah,
0: yeah, I had hoped. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that information comes from CreatureCast in their video, How Siphonophores Grow, which is associated with Yale and Brown Universities. Awesome. Uh, their life cycle, we kind of touched on this a little bit. So each zooid of a given siphonophore all descend from a single fertilized egg, which also means every individual in there is genetically identical.
1: Mm. Okay, a clone army. We love a clone army.
0: <laughs> so, that starting egg turns into a protozoid that buds, creating the stem and other polyps in Medusa that grow off of it. Mm. So, I should talk more about what it looks like. You can imagine uh, in this species, there's like uh, the front of it has a big, like gas filled chamber that helps with buoyancy and then from that point down is a stem in which buds pop off of it um growing off of it for things like uh feeding and propulsion and uh, reproduction
1: okay interesting yeah big plant
0: almost yeah
1: oh that's really cool does it look like a spinal column yes oh that's spooky
0: (laughs) more on that later (laughs) uh and the reproductive zooids release eggs or sperm into the water column for external fertilizations in the hopes of creating a new siphonophore.
1: I mean, I would—I was imagining these things aren't mating, like
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> not in the mammalian sense. Right,
1: like they're not exactly going out and courting a partner and going <laughs> no, on dates and cuddling. It's
0: more like broadcast, is that what it's called? Broadcast spawning?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So they, they're putting that genetic material out there to become fertilized and grow into a, a new siphonophore. It's not like it's breaking off one of these polyps and then that's growing into a, a, an individual.
1: That is how some yeah. invertebrates, like sponges, I think, reproduce that way. Mm-hmm. You basically just have to like tear a chunk off. And- right grow a new colony
0: right and it's worth noting like you know if one of these things does get broken off from the rest of it 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 won't survive because Mm -hmm. it, it can't do everything that the rest of the colony is doing
1: but the growth sections are okay Like, the growth sections can just grow new ones, but the ones that got cut off are are done.
0: And here's what's interesting. Um, This pattern of growth, um, so, like, it might make a feeding zooid, and it might then make two or three reproductive zooids. That pattern repeats and is the same in every individual of that species. Oh, I see. Yeah.
1: Interesting. What if... You were like born into the world, and your entire job was pooping like I'm the <laughs> I'm the pooping guy
0: <laughs> of this
1: of this super organism one of hundreds <laughs> it's me and the pooping guys
0: <laughs> we're
1: all for pooping yeah. It's like Finley's been saying this thing recently where he says, I'm not a sharing guy or like, <laughs>
0: I'm, 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 a, I'm,
1: a, I'm a watching TV guy right now. Like if he wants to do something, he says like, that's the guy he is.
0: <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm not a doing stuff guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is, the,
1: the, they do the one thing. That's the guy they are.
0: Yeah. As you might guess from one of my sources, they are bioluminescent.
1: Oh yeah, I did hear this a little bit. <laughs> I was going to wait patiently.
0: (laughs) Now, just to touch on what that means. it means they create their own light versus the term biofluorescent, which means absorbing one light wave and then emitting a different light wave. Yeah,
1: biofluorescent would be the black light one. Like, you shine, like, a black light on them and they glow. But this is, like, they just
0: glow. They generate this light. Um, This is very common for things that live in the deep sea.
1: But it seems like for something that's also very, very fragile, maybe don't put a giant, like glowing neon well, diner sign <laughs> says open for business free well, buffet they got
0: to eat oh <laughs> what do they eat so we mentioned um, that they have polyps that are designed for eating they eat in very much the same way as their cousins the jellyfish eat and that they have on those polyps they have long strands of nematocysts
1: mm, interesting
0: like <laughs> so stinging cells
1: oh but like tentacles like a jellyfish that yes. come off. Wow. yes that's got to be really spooky to it see is. like in the
0: water because in the water column as they're kind of f- floating and slowly moving along this long line they, they look like a curtain of Ooh. stinging cells
1: oh spooky <laughs> oh they're so spooky yeah but they're like catching stuff in those uh-huh It's like a dragnet that they just carry around.
0: Well, the idea is their bioluminescence helps lure in uh, things.
1: Oh, that's spooky. Mm. Uh, You would think that eventually you just stop stop going towards glowing stuff. (laughs) It's never good.
0: Well, I think what the idea here is they're doing this to mimic the prey items of the things they're trying to catch. (gasps) Rude. (laughs) (laughs) So this... I'm just noticing a theme here in the deep sea. It's Mm -hmm. just this cycle of of bioluminescence.
1: (laughs) Oh, stay tuned. Next week, we uh, have an episode in store in the chamber for next week. That Mm -hmm. is, we go into a lot of that stuff. It's really, it's very spooky down there.
0: And this particular species glows blue. Aw. Yeah. Um, They are the longest bioluminescent animal on the planet.
1: Well, okay, but... (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) At at this point, you're like, does it it count... (laughs) <laughs> what is that? That's
1: that's why a lot of times when they talk about like the biggest animal, sometimes they gotta go by weight because they're like, yeah, okay, you're.
0: But also the whole individual idea, like, right? Does like... this count? <laughs> <laughs> Because if I line up 100 elephants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the biggest animal. They're all touching. It's fine.
0: So that that was according to the Guinness World Records. And the next thing I'll we'll talk about is their structure is made for the deep, but is otherwise extremely fragile. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: So uh, they kind of depend on that pressure to hold their form.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, we see this with, with deep sea animals. Yeah. So they're kind of soft
0: well they're just like jellyfish they're pretty much entirely gelatinous Mm. even more so in that if they are pulled up to the surface they pretty much pop into just a pile of unrecognizable goo
1: Oh, okay. So, so I guess you wouldn't be seeing one in like a zoo or something like that, like right. aquarium.
0: Yeah. So, you know, good observations of this species and other species that are in deeps are in the deep sea really didn't happen until technology allowed us to go down to where they're found.
1: Right? Because that's not for us.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: we weren't supposed to see that.
0: We were definitely pulling them up but didn't know what they were oh or,
1: <laughs> it's this weird shoelace I found or
0: what their normal like composure is you yeah
1: know? I mean when you talk about things like jellyfish they're like mostly water mm-hmm. right so once they pop there's like there's nothing they're just <laughs> empty
0: <laughs> And we touched this on this earlier, but they have those long tentacles of nematocysts, where they'll when when it comes into contact with something, it'll fire that stinging cell into whatever that something is. Yeah, in the hopes that it's it is a prey item, and it'll either you know immobilize or kill whatever that prey is to then be you know pulled into the feeding structure. And absorbed. You
1: you better hope it kills. (laughs) If you're one of those little guys, you better hope it kills you because otherwise you have a very disturbing couple of minutes left
0: in Mm -hmm, your life. mm -hmm. It reminds me of the Sarlacc from Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of things
1: remind you of the Sarlacc from Star Wars, though.
0: Always thinking about that, Sarlacc. (laughs) It's your Roman Empire. (laughs) So that wraps up. Effectiveness moving on to ingenuity. I'm giving a three out of ten.
1: That's generous. That seems very kind.
0: (laughs) They're able to move. Um, the
1: big. (laughs) That's a big get for them.
0: Not all their cousins can say the same thing. That's true. That's <laughs> Where true. they're just at the mercy of outside forces.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we love being able to move. That's yeah. great. I think that's one of the criteria for being considered an animal. <laughs>
0: so, and at those depths, you really have to be, because the food density is not such that you can just freely float and hope for the best. Yeah. So, that being able to move and then also having a lure component is, is really what helps them in that mm-hmm. depth. That's about it there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you gave them three points for being able to move and
0: hunt. They're hunting. <laughs> They're predators. Are we calling that hunting? <laughs> we're throwing
1: we're them a lot of bones here.
0: It kind of reminds me of the what was it the the freshwater clams we were talking about mm. that evolved to, to look like fish tails.
1: Oh, the mussels, the freshwater mussels. Yes, uh, that's,
0: that's what it was. The mussels. That was
1: much more impressive mimicry.
0: <laughs> but it was interesting, is like the. Yes, they look like them, but they would never know that. Oh, right? that's
1: true. Like they don't know why.
0: They lack the organs and perception to know that. It's right. just <laughs> it just happened to work and that's what got re- reproduced.
1: <laughs> yeah, like they don't know why they look like that. They just look like that and it works for some reason. So I
0: wonder if something similar is going on. Like do they <laughs> does the does the siphonophore have the capability to understand what it's doing is resulting in catching prey or is it that's just what works?
1: It's like how like folk medicines that like stumbled into the correct like yeah. treatment for something even though we had no way of understanding like the mechanism for the illness like before like germ theory and stuff right. and no way of understanding why we were getting sick but like it's like i don't know this thing i'm doing seems to help
0: yeah yeah and then people still try to go for it nowadays <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's no way to know <laughs> yes there is <laughs> maybe someday
1: the siphonophores will develop uh an ability to see the world around them and mm. understand why they look the way they do
0: <laughs> i'm giving a seven out of ten for aesthetics
1: for which part are I you saying? I think
0: they look like a quirky string of Christmas lights.
1: Oh, that's a whimsical way of describing <laughs> it. <laughs> I guess it is kind of like, it's kind of a little bit out of fashion now, but for that period of time where everything was just fairy lights,
0: mm, mm-hmm. like
1: if you wanted to make a room look really cute, you just throw up some fairy lights and like, that was it. That was like the moment. Yeah. It's fairy lights.
0: Uh huh.
1: Fairy lights of the ocean. Yeah. They do also kind of look like the giant spinal column from the end of Attack on Titan. How dare you? Oh!
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's funny. That's fine. Did you also have that in your notes? Yeah, it says Attack on Titan Um, (laughs) (laughs) tie-in.
1: Fill in as needed.
0: So after we pass the uh, -the off-the-rails point of Attack on Titan, the anime... Um, they reveal some sort of creature that really began the whole Titan thing. And to me, even at the time, it looked like a very large terrestrial somehow siphonophore.
1: Yeah. With the dangly parts coming yeah. off of like a sort of central. It looks, It's like a spinal column. Yeah, but. yeah.
0: It and does kind of look like and that. then especially when it like the head part of it, it has the exact same kind of profile as a, as this kind of siphonophore.
1: There are a lot of things in Attack on Titan that make me think I'm like I think an animal nerd worked on this. Yeah, because yeah. like the cart titan, like the face of the cart titan looks a lot like early ancestors of whales. Mm, oh yeah, and so I'm like I think there were, I think <laughs> an animal
0: nerd was on this. They also <laughs> threw in one titan that looked like an okapi in like the last couple like episodes
1: and then did not expand on that
0: (laughs) at all it was a bit because they were trying like they didn't know what an okapi was they were trying (laughs) to describe what it was and it was like what are you talking about right now
1: itself is kind of a throwback to like early europeans trying to describe what an okapi was and how they thought it was like a unicorn and it was considered to be a cryptid until they actually found one so i
0: think
1: there was some secret nerds on that show
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah siphonophores very interesting no conservation status to speak of on this one
1: they can always make more
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i mean i imagine their biggest threats are probably uh climate change pollution because now unfortunately our human pollution is making its way into the deep ocean
1: i have heard that amongst the biodiversity crisis jellyfish stand to gain the most oh yeah and like are projected to be the most either unaffected or benefited by climate change so mm-hmm. like it's all going to be jellyfish yeah eventually so <laughs> i wonder if maybe they're uh maybe they have the most to gain
0: couldn't say <laughs> Also being that fragile, even when they are observed in their natural environment, like even the slightest bump into, you know, an an ROV would break their chain of like polyps there. Which I I imagine is just kind of
1: an inconvenience (laughs) for them at that point because they're like, man, I got to grow a whole new one.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're losing a lot of function there, but then I guess less biomass to upkeep at the same time. I don't Mm, know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just kind of annoying. It's like when you lose your Duolingo streak. You're like, man, <laughs> shoot. I start all over.
0: Oh, um, I also read that this particular species was featured in Blue Planet 2 in one of the earlier episodes. It's
1: also been in Octonauts.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, Blue
1: Planet and Octonauts, equal levels mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. of sort of critical acclaim.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> much very much on the same level yeah for
1: sure that's also funny because next week's episode includes a peek behind the scenes and some of the footage featured in blue planet 2 so interesting ways that you're propping up next week's episode
0: oh nice you should listen to it (laughs) (laughs) i just might okay that'd Um, be nice and if you're interested in learning more about siphonophores like i mentioned earlier siphonophores.org is a good one and uh Marine Bioluminescence webpage as well, which has ties to the University of California Santa Barbara and Mabari, or let's see if I remember it.
1: You know what it is. The
0: Monterey Bay... Aquarium, uh huh. Research, there you go. Let's, Institute, yeah, you got it. <laughs> I just left the acronym and didn't spell it out in my notes.
1: <laughs> but see, we've come across it so many times, I know mm-hmm. you know it by heart. We're you're on a first name basis. A
0: lot of the footage you'll find today of of Siphonophores comes from those those research teams in the Monterey Bay area.
1: I mean, they're the ones <laughs> peddling around down there, yeah. taking videos of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like when you do very philosophic animals. <laughs> yeah. You can really dig into what it means to be an animal.
0: This is a good one. Because I feel like if there was any animal in which I would just f- come across by itself, this is the one I think I would be least likely to think is related to life as we know it.
1: Right. It's giving, like, protobacteria. Mm. It's giving, like, what is it? What's it called? Archaea or whatever. Whatever that... Like kingdom of right. life is. Yeah, it def- definitely makes you think. You wouldn't think that you would be more closely related to a siphonophore than to like a tree or sure. a fungus or something. Like yeah, It just, it seems the most alien. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. But it's
1: very cool to think about.
0: And that that's always something I think about when we talk about the possibility of extraterrestrial life. And would we even recognize it as being alive?
1: Right. Like what if it looks like a, <laughs> a siphonophore?
0: <laughs>
1: what if there's like space siphonophores? maybe sci-fi loves to do space whales like every Uh like sci-fi franchise has some sort of space whales in it like there's other stuff out like give me (laughs) space (laughs) siphonophores it'd be so cool
0: yeah yeah
1: thank you my love that was great well thank you if you liked what you heard today i would love it if you left some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice you guys always have very kind things to say to us and i really appreciate that if you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description. And if you want to let us know what animal you'd like us to talk about on the show, you can send those to me at Ellen ellenatjustthezooofus.com. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other delightful shows. Uh, you can go check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. And finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our spectacular theme music, which I love very much. Very good. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks, bye.